You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what is a yoke? It's not only a great word for puns, and I'm not exaggerating. It is a great word for, all right, front row. Thanks for being there. So a yoke, does anyone know what a yoke, what a yoke is, what a yoke was? For the ox, right. Usually what, oh, you get a star, gold star today. Uh, a yoke would attach two oxen together and they would, so that they would move together and they would share the weight and move in the same direction. You wouldn't want to have one drifting off. They would stay together. And unlike uh, other things in our lives, Jesus is saying, uh, take my yoke upon you, attach yourself to me, because unlike all the other things in life that you can attach yourselves to, whether it be work, whether it be you yoking yourself to power or recognition or relationship, it can all turn. They are all heavy burdens because you're doing the heavy lifting. Or they're going to drift off and they're going to try to drag you off the path of life. So when Jesus offers himself as, as a yoke to put on, he's inviting us to attach ourselves to him. Already accepted, nothing to accomplish for his favor, it's an invitation. The message translation of the Bible, which is really more like a commentary on the Bible by Eugene Peterson, says it this way. I love the way he says it. Do we have the, the next one there? Yeah. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Wouldn't it be nice to recover our life? I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I mean, just, I just read that, and I just go, oh, yes, please. Yes, thanks, Eugene, for putting that so well. So I'll ask you again, are you tired? <laughs> do you need rest for your soul? What are you yoked to? What are you attaching yourself Two. Today we're going to be reading from Mark, as I said, chapter 2, verses 23 through to 3, verse 6. And we're going to be unpacking what Jesus means, what Scripture means when it talks about Sabbath. Now before we go into the text, what I, what I want to do is kind of lead you towards the text by giving you the cast of characters. If you've ever been to a, a, a show, a musical, or a play, often you can open, open up the little booklet at the beginning, and it'll, it'll kind of give you the cast of characters and what their background is. And so when you go in, you have a better idea. Or if you've ever read War and Peace, there's like 15, literally 1,500 characters in there. And a lot of people, we were hearing yesterday, if you, Ian Proven speaking yesterday, it's like I, I stopped reading it because it's just complicated. So some of you, if you read Russian novels, some of the modern day translations will have a list in the back of everyone's name. And if it's a Russian novel, they often go by three names, which makes it even more complicated, and it lists them all. So in order to, to step into this text with a greater understanding, uh, I just want to kind of give you the cast of characters. Jesus is the main character. Uh, Jesus has been, as we've already seen in the first two chapters, he's been healing, he's been telling te demons to take a hike as he proclaims that God's kingdom has shown up in himself. 
And so he's proclaiming this peace and this good news breaking into human history. He is proclaiming that God sees you, he loves you, and he pursues you. And so he's been healing lepers, people who've been left out of, the, out of society. He's been healing paralytics, those who can't make their way to him. And he's saying, you are loved, you are seen, you are, you are forgiven freely. And as he looks on the opposite side, as he sees those who consider themselves religious because they've, they've lined up everything, well, he'll say, I see through all that. You can, put on, you can try to cover up your heart with as much good practice, as much volunteering at the soup kitchen as you want, as much memorization of scripture as you want. But if your heart does not belong to me, I am going to pull you down. I am going to cause you to, to, to humil, not humil, be humiliated, but to humble yourselves in light of the gospel. Then we have the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, these disciples would go. And so every time Jesus is saying something, he's not just teaching the person he's talking to, he's teaching his disciples. Every time Jesus makes an action, he's saying, look at what I do and do what I do. This is what you are called to. Then there's the Pharisees, those whose job they believed were, was to keep Israel pure. And the way you keep Israel pure and unaffected by the Romans and the Greek Hellenization of the world and the worship of their gods and their culture, they believed was to be a perfectly religious Israel, a Torah, a, a, a law-abiding Israel. And that they actually believed that if you followed uh, Torah very well, you followed their religion very well, that would actually bring the day of the Lord. And God would come back because you lived right. And that was their Cool. Imagine how it shook them up when Jesus showed up and, st and started talking about himself bringing that day of the Lord and then just kind of blowing off all their rules. You can see why they started getting into arguments and debates with him. Then there was a group that's mentioned here called the Herodians. You don't hear a lot of them in Scripture. The Herodians were like, like Canadians with, with a picture of Queen Elizabeth on their, on their, in their dining room they were, they were monarchists. They, they loved the, the Herodian family. They loved Herod the Great, who was the, the king of, of Judah, who was, but really was a puppet king just placed there by, by the Romans. But these guys were into the Herodians. They, they wore their T-shirts. They, they went to all the events when Herod was out, and they, they celebrated the fact that they had a king who was an influence, really, for Hellenism in their, in their community. So you would think that the Pharisees and the Herodians are not going to get along well, right? One is trying to keep Israel pure, and one is trying to bring in Hellenism. Then there's a, a, there's a hidden character here, and the hidden character is halakha. Do we have that word there? Halakha. Everyone together? Halakha. You guys are fantastic. Your Hebrew is impeccable. Halakha. I didn't know we were going to be doing Halakha means the path that one walks. It was a, a set of Jewish rules and practices based on the law of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, but then additions that rabbis had made and commentaries and things like the Mishnah and the Talmud, and they added all these extra rules on top. So how do you, do, how do you not work on Sabbath? Well, what constitutes work? If I, if I have to tie my sandals up to go to, uh, to the synagogue or to the temple, how many knots can I tie in my sandal? Two is enough to keep that sandal on. You do three, you've just broken Shabbat. You just worked. Well, how far can I walk on Sabbath? Because if I have a walk too far, that becomes like work. So uh, how far is it from, what's the average walking from person, a person's home to the temple or the local synagogue? Whatever that is, that's acceptable. But anything beyond that, you've just worked and you've broken Sabbath. 
Now, where does it say that in the Old Testament? It does not. These are extra rules on. And then lastly is the idea of Sabbath that we'll read about here, the day of rest. On the seventh day, God, after God had created for six days, he rested. And then God gifted Sabbath to his people. It's not just about rest. It's about enjoying everything that you work towards. You work to support your family, then enjoy your family on Sabbath. You work um, to give towards the church, maybe. So enjoy the church. Enjoy the community of the church. You, you, you work six days because you want to give financially to your community. So go and spend time in your community. Go and walk around the beautiful lake that's right outside these doors. If you guys, if I, I talk about Sabbath, and you guys do not go walking around the lake after the service, I don't even know. All right. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means set apart from all other days. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant your, or your female. See, it's not just personal. It's about the kind of work you place on other people. You remember, you don't do that on your livestock or, or the sojourner who is, living, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sabbath means deep rest. Deep rest. It's close to the same meaning as shalom. That everything is just kind of, ah. Oh. Not just peace, but everything's kind of right. <laughs> this doesn't mean doing nothing. It means doing things that bring life, that bring shalom. As one scholar says, they were to, to fill the day with all sorts of activities they simply found enjoyable. That's Shabbat. We are blessed to worship where we do on Sunday. Because as we walk out of here, especially on a day like this, sometimes it's not so nice when we walk out the doors. On a day like this, we can walk out and we can look at the mountains and we go, I'm going to go hiking today. I'm going to ride my bike today. I'm going to walk along the river. I'm going to walk around the lake. Do whatever to enjoy. Just enjoy life. Now some might say that's irresponsible. And some definitely did in Jesus' day. That's irresponsible. There are things to be done. You can't just do nothing for a day and just spend time going for a hike. And I would say to that person, you do not understand the heart of God. God's heart is for you, not burden for you. So with all of that, I am going to invite you to stand if you're able and not pregnant. <laughs> I think we're, we're almost there. <laughs> We've almost had them all now, I think. Uh, Marika just uh, had little Henry. Yeah, on, uh, on Friday, I believe, yeah. Fantastic. All right. So reading from Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting at verse 23. On one Sabbath, he, being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and they made their way. As they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They were labeling that work. And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, the temple or the tabernacle, in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man there uh, with a withered hand. There was a man there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's a nice way to get together for worship, isn't it? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. Jesus, I pray you would open our hearts and minds to what you would want to say to us this morning. And I thank you for the gospel of Mark and just the things that we've been walking through, understanding that your heart is for us, that you see us, you love us, you pursue us. And what a difference that makes in a world that can seem very chaotic at times to know that the creator of all things, the one who wrote the first chapter and wrote the last chapter, has welcomed us in. And I pray that that would mean hope and peace for us. And I pray that as we talk about Sabbath, that it would mean uh, a deeper rest for us. Even today, as we understand your love for us, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. This, um, this passage is not about grain and taking grain. The, the, this, this, the second story is not really about healing a withered hand. It's about who or what has authority and power over your life. Because who or what has power over your life will determine whether or not you will find rest for your soul. Listen to that. <laughs> who or what has power over your life will determine whether or not you will find rest for your soul. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. That is what is at stake here. What does Sabbath mean? What is the, this invitation to Sabbath? There's a, there's a handful of things I want to talk about, uh, about what Sabbath means for us. First is Sabbath is a demand that you enjoy your life. <laughs> it's a demand that you press pause and enjoy yourself. It was a demand by God that you take time to stop working, to acquire things, and enjoy your life. And it's an open-ended, um, life-giving demand. The God of the Old Testament loved it when his people had a party. He loved it when his people would celebrate. In fact, he wanted to make sure, he didn't just leave it to them, he made sure they set up all these festivals throughout the year so they would stop everything, they would enjoy the harvest, they would enjoy community, and they would worship him together. Sabbath was a weekly festival. It was hammered into every week. But by Jesus' time, it had become a restriction, not a joy. It had become more about what you're not to do than what you are to do. Rather than a delight, it had become a burden. It was rules, not rest. When God first gave Sabbath to Israel, he said this in Leviticus 23. He said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts. So this is the list of feasts he's about to give. Celebrations of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. First one, six days work will be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. It was a time to get together. It was a time to party. It was a time to eat food and remember who you belong to and celebrate. So are you tired? Are you worn out? Maybe you're not celebrating enough. 
You ever met people who don't know how to celebrate? They're not happy people. If you ever meet people who don't know how to rest, they are not happy people. Number two, Sabbath is a gift. It's not a burden. Sabbath is a gift to you, but it is also a gift to everyone who interacts with you. (laughs) Because when we take Sabbath, when we take times of rest and press pause in our lives and celebrate, we're better for everybody around us as well. We are more of a gift to everybody. In this first uh, verse that we looked at in, in chapter 2, verse 23, one Sabbath, it says, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, using the tradition of halakha, not using God's law that he laid down in the Old Testament, but using this oral tradition of halakha, uh, they didn't use Hebrew scriptures. They said, look, why are they doing what is not lawful? So they, they elevated their man-made rules to the rules of God. Why are they doing what is not Lawful. Now what was not lawful on the Sabbath was to work like any other day. Nowhere in Scripture does it say they could not pick grain. Which means they had their own rules that were above the text. And in response, Jesus points the Pharisees, I love this, Jesus points his Pharisees back to this story of the most celebrated king in Israel's history. King David, and he's pointing to a story that you can find in 1 Samuel 20, 21. We're not going to go there. But basically what happened, well, David was, was not yet king, and he was being chased by King Saul, who was trying to wipe him out, even though God had already anointed David to one day be king. David finds himself at the tabernacle with him and his buddies, and they are tired, and they are hungry because they've been on the run. And they step into the tabernacle, and they say to the priest, we are hungry. And the priest says, the only bread I have here is the bread of what's called the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence were 12 loaves, one loaf for each, representing each tribe in Israel. And they were put in the tabernacle and they were left there. Each week, a new batch was baked by the priests. I don't know if the priests were good bakers. I don't know. But they were the ones that at the end of 12 days, they would eat. The priests, it was their bread. They would eat it. And then they would replace it with 12 new loaves. The law said the priest and the priest only were supposed to eat the bread. But David says he's hungry and the priest gives them voluntarily the food on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus bringing up this story. Because one, David's the most beloved king in all of Israel. Are they going to say that he did something wrong? Secondly, the priest himself gave it to David and his men. They weren't coerced. Thirdly, nowhere in Scripture does it condemn them for this action. So to say that David was wrong, the Pharisees would would have to lift their own authority over King David, over the priest, and over the Torah. That's a pretty good move. That's a pretty good move by Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, if you're wondering what kind of authority I have to say things like this, to bring up this story, to, to march my disciples through a grain field and not judge them when they take it, you need to know that I can give new instruction for Sabbath. I'll tell you why. And he says in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. It says even because throughout the last two chapters, we've seen he has authority over demons. We have, he has the authority to heal. He has authority to forgive sins. And just so you know, I also have authority over the Sabbath. I'm not abolishing Sabbath. I am placing it back where it belongs. And yes, I can do that. The third thing about Sabbath is that Sabbath is God's ownership ownership stamp on our lives. It's his ownership stamp on our lives. Sabbath is God's imprint 
that tells ourselves and it tells possibly employers. And if we are employers, it tells our employees that we understand, our family, our friends, that we belong and our time belongs and our future belongs first and foremost to God. We will not be overrun by other things because first and foremost, God has stamped a festival in the middle of our week that says we belong to him. We take rest because it's an exercise of trusting God and not living in slavery to the ethic of the world. Do you remember when in the Old Testament when manna was given to the children of God and they were only to collect enough for the day? And if they collected too much, it would go rotten. But on the sixth day, they were to collect for two days and trust that it wouldn't go rotten, even though they knew it would go rotten those first three. So even doing Sabbath and saying, okay, I'm not going to overwork myself. I'm not going to overexert myself, and I'm going to trust God. There's an aspect of trust for many when we take Sabbath. It was meant for, as we, as we read in Leviticus, it is meant to, to stamp everyone and say, First and foremost, we are all God's creation. We will not overwork our employees, and we will not allow ourselves to be overrun by work. Fourthly, Sabbath is about recreation and health. Sabbath is about recreation and health. In chapter 3, when we see Jesus in the synagogue about to heal this man with a withered hand, it says, verse 2, And they watched Jesus, who's that? The Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Literally, the, the, the Greek says they watched out of the corner of their eyes. So they look like they're part of worship, but really they're going, what is he going to do? It is a, a way of looking at someone to judge someone, to spy on someone. Guys, that's what religion does. Religion looks out of the corner of its eye and goes, are they doing it right? Are they doing it right? And then it gets ready to accuse when people are not doing it right. That is what religion does. It does not save. It is looking for a way to get you. That's not the gospel. The people of Israel were surrounded by religious leaders and practices. Every second of their lives was lived under the weight of religion. And there was no life in it. In fact, not only was it dead, it killed and stole life from everyone around who it, who it infected. Jesus becomes angry at these men because the, at the heart of Sabbath is a declaration that your life and time belong to a loving, caring, benevolent God. The heart of Sabbath was restoration and making whole. It was, it was all about health. So healing someone on the Sabbath is exactly what Sabbath is all about. And I, all, I wonder, when I, when I make that point about recreation, recreation, I just want to change the way we say recreation. So we understand that recreation is recreation. We need to have recreation built into our lives. And as a side note, if we don't build, if we don't build it into our calendar, it doesn't go there by accident. Set that up first. Set that up with your family. Set that up for yourself to take time to just celebrate life. It's about replenishing and repairing the broken. Now, how could they miss that? How could the Pharisees stand and judge on Sabbath? How can they be more concerned about rules than a poor man's withered hand being fixed? The answer, religion. Religion has the power to suck life out of a love story. Religion makes obedience about gaining God's affection rather than a response to being fully accepted. It stole life in the first century, and it can still steal life today. 
And by the way, when we believe that we must work overtime, that we believe we must accomplish and get ahead, or we must do, that's religion. That's religion. We've just traded Jesus out for something else, something less forgiving, a heavier yoke, a difficult burden. Are you weary? Are you tired, Jesus says? Who do you belong to? What are you yoked to? Fifth, Sabbath rest is not about a day. It's about who you belong to. The point isn't even Sunday. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we're told not to give up meeting together like this because this is part of what ought to encourage us and spur us on in our faith. But the Sabbath that Scripture talks about is not really about a day. It's about who we belong to. That, the point isn't even Sunday. The Apostle Paul had to, had to come out, work through this question with the, with the early church because they were like, well, what, do we, what kind of things do we still have to, to follow? And, and if the point was that we have to follow Sabbath the same way the Jews did in the Old Testament, we've been failing for 2,000 years because they celebrated on Saturday. So the Jews and the Seventh-day Adventists are nailing it. And we're not doing so well. Paul writes this in Romans 14, verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's where the Spirit works on us. Um, Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one look out of the, corner, the side of their eye on you. Uh, questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Don't miss the heart of the Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. So the point is, is do we have a life that shows that our life, including our time, belongs to God? And we're not just going to spend time accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. We're going to spend time being recreated and enjoying the things we've worked towards. Number six, Sabbath points to a deeper rest. And this is what the gospel is about. This is what the gospel for you and I individually as a, and as a church, how we're perceived by the world, this is what we need to understand. That Sabbath points to a deeper rest. A present deeper rest. A rest that we can, we can have now, currently available. Jesus says, come to me now. That's the language of, of the Matthew passage. If you're, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. Not when you're done running. Not when you've hit the wall. Not when you're, you're, you're curled up in fetal position at the end of your bed because you can't go on because you've just been running on the treadmill for so long and yoking yourself to so many things that have been draining your life. Not then. Come now and find rest for your soul. It points to a deeper rest we can have right now, but it also points to a future deeper rest, which, which our, our current deeper rest is just pointing towards. You and I are part of an eternal, unbreakable kingdom. We live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, pointing us to a future rest. And so if people see Christians in the current craziness of society and they go, how do you live with this kind of hope? You say, well, I have a deeper rest that's based on a future rest. Why are you not, why are you lashing out on social media? Well, because I've got a hope and I've got a peace and I've got a deeper rest pointing towards a future deeper rest. I don't need to get caught up in this. This is not 
This page of the book is not my final page. So I'm not going to get caught up in this. I'm going to love people as well as I can. And as much as it's up to me, I'm going to live in peace with one another, with each other. But my life is going to be a signpost that points towards a future deeper rest. How do I know that future deeper rest is going to happen? Because the future dove into our present 2,000 years ago. Well, that's technically not our present. But stepped into the middle, the, the future of history, stepped into the middle of history in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we look at his life, death, and we look at his resurrection. We go, I understand there's a future rest coming for me, and I'm going to allow that to animate my present life. That's what brings people into the church. Having, having four questions to ask about whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell if you die today, that's not what brings people into the church. That's not what makes people disciples. But man, in today's culture saying, you know, I got a deeper rest. Aren't you upset? I can't be upset about everything. <laughs> I'll pick them, but ultimately I have a deeper rest pointing towards an ultimate eternal rest. Some of you, if you're as old as I am, you'll remember the movie Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire followed the life of Eric Little. I think we've got a, a, a yeah, that's the actual Eric Little, not the one from the movie. Eric Little was a, many of you know this story, Eric Little was a Scottish Christian who longed to do missionary work, but was also blessed with great speed. He was very fast. And he went to the 1924 Olympics, and he was called to run, but then they shifted the time he was supposed to run to Sunday. And Eric Little had a deep conviction in his heart that he would not run on Sunday because he believed God had stamped him with the eternal, deeper rest and so he was going to yoke himself to Jesus and not yoke himself to the glory he might receive if he ran and won. And so he never ran that race. He had a sense that his life and his true rest was found in Jesus. So missing that, re missing that race was not real, a, a giant miss for him. It was a declaration that God's stamp was on his life. Now in contrast to Eric Little was Harold Abrams. We've got a shot of him as well. Abram's entire life about running was about proving his worth. About proving that he deserved people's tension, deserved his family's love, deserved the respect of people. And speaking of, of, of the sprinting event that he was about to run in, Abram said this. He said, when I run, I have 10 seconds to prove my existence. No pressure. Does that sound familiar? And we can add some different times to it. I've got 60 hours a week to prove my existence. I've got 70 hours, 90 hours a week. These are the hours where I prove my existence. But as I've said before, how we spend our hours is how we spend our days is how we spend our life. What we spend our hours yoked to is how, how we, what we spend our days yoked to is what we spend our lives yoked to. Eric Little came from a completely different angle. He simply wanted to enjoy the gift of speed that God had given him. And he'll enjoy it on God's terms. And in a quote from the movie that my wife has quoted more times than I can remember. <laughs> and if you've seen the movie and you love the movie, we all know the quote. Little was speaking to his sister and he said, God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He made me fast or, and when I run, I feel 
is pleasure. If, if Christianity is narrowed down to the way we ought to live to justify ourselves, it will suck the life out of us and it will make our faith unattractive and it'll make our faith unbearable, not just for other people. It'll be a burden too much for us to carry. See, Harold Abrams was weary even when he rested. Eric Little rested even when he was running. That's what Jesus invites us to. It's a, it's a rest that comes from the understanding that when Jesus was on the cross, after suffering shame and pain and ridicule, he said, it is finished. It is finished. The pain of trying to please God and get his eye, of gaining his affection, that ought to define all other running and treadmills and yokes we might attach ourselves to. It is done. The race is run. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We can rest assured. There's no more reasons to be running. Now, I don't have a seventh point because that would step on my whole sermon point. It wouldn't be biblical to have a seventh point. <laughs> but it is interesting <laughs> to point out the, at the end of this story in verse 6, after the Pharisees have accused Jesus of messing up Sabbath, after Jesus challenges them, saying in verse 4, what, what's it, is it right to do this on Sabbath? Is it better to give life or is it better to kill? The Pharisees on the Sabbath, in verse 6, what do they do on the Sabbath? They plot to kill him. Think of the blindness of that. Religion, and I would say a secular version of religion, workaholism, it hates Jesus. It hates Jesus. They deny the worth that he proclaims on your life. They, 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 they hate the idea, they push up against the idea that the gospel gives us, that everything has been paid for, that everything is done, that you don't need to find your identity in those kinds of things. Religion and workaholism are about effort. Religion and workaholism, they stifle growth, and Jesus inspires and empowers it. Now, some people are afraid that without religion, without boundaries strictly laid down, people will just do whatever they want. You can't preach that sermon, then nobody's going to show up on Sunday morning. I'm actually surprised at how many are here, to be honest, because I know Super Bowl is today. Football. I'm going to kick it three times and don't even get me started. <laughs> All 11 minutes of excitement. I know some of you are pumped for it. But people who would say, hey, listen, you need to have religion and you need to have some very strict rules or people will disobey or people will be disobedient. And I would say to those people, then you've never truly fallen in love. You've never been in a relationship of deep love and deep understanding. And I don't just mean marriage or romantic relationship, but a deep relationship where you just want to spend time with somebody. I don't stay faithful to my wife because she gave me a book of marriage rules that said, you stay faithful to me. She gave me a book of marriage rules, but it didn't have that one in it. No, she didn't. I love her, I want to do more things with her, and I want to do things that draw me closer to her, and I want to remove those things that keep me from getting closer to her. 
that keep me from sitting on the couch with her at night and saying, let's play a game or let's read. And then, yeah, I, I, don't, want, I don't want anything that's going to get in the way of that. So I'm going to be very careful with my life. Not because it's rule-based, but because I want to spend time with her. It's a gift. It reminds me of what's important and who I belong to, who I am tethered to, who I am yoked to. Guys, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Are you burned out on just trying to get things right and right and follow the rules? Jesus says, come to me. Come away with me. I love that idea of come away with me. Not just, just come a little close. Just come, let's just, just come here. I just see him putting his arm around. Just come, come here for a second. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What a beautiful invitation. Guys, one of the ways we remember, we practice, we, we recall that we are keeping company with Jesus, not just in the future, but in the present, is when we, when we do the sacrament of communion together. We're going to do communion in a second. Now, did everyone, if you did not receive these wonderful little mobile uh, communion cups uh, and you would like one, can you just raise your hand? Okay. And our, our good man, Andrew, others oh, raise yeah, keep, keep them up until Andrew comes. Um, just grab, they're all the same. You don't need to rifle through them. In the light of COVID, just grab the one and take it out. And I am going to invite you, the second you have it in your hand, to already prepare it. We all know that wonderful sacred moment of... <laughs> so I'll invite you. There's a thin layer on the top if you don't know. You can undo that. And then there's a slightly thicker one that undoes it from the, uh, from the juice. And just have that ready. Guys, when we take the sacrament, we call it a sacrament. You guys know the word sacred. It's something that you place aside that has great meaning to it. When we do the sacrament of communion, this simple symbol points towards an eternal truth. This everyday stuff of bread. Bread which in almost every culture and throughout history has meant sustenance to get me through the day. Doesn't it make sense? What a great symbol Jesus gave us to say, Jesus, we want to be reminded that you give us sustenance from now into eternity until you return. And there's a great promise in scripture that, that when Jesus gave us communion, when he gave us what we call the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, depending on what tradition you came from, that we're to eat it until he returns. So we're reminded of a few things as we take these simple everyday things and attach eternal and cosmic significance to them. First is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again in the flesh. We're reminded that we eat this until he returns and we're going to eat it together with him one day. But we're also reminded that the, today, the Spirit of Christ is with us. The Spirit of Christ to each of us today is saying, I will give you rest. It's taken care of. It was taken care of 2,000 years ago. I will give you rest. This reminds us that that invitation is for us here, even now. So it takes care of our past. It looks to the future and it reminds us to find our sustenance daily 
to yoke ourselves daily to he who gives life and promises rest, deep rest for your soul. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take the bread together first. Jesus, we thank you so much for your humility. We thank you so much for such a deep, passionate, stubborn love for each person in this room, for your creation, that you would leave the comfort of your throne. Scripture says, for the joy set before you, for the joy of being in communion, in community with us, you left your throne, you took on flesh, you were beaten and bruised, and as Isaiah said, you did that for us to absorb what was rightly ours. And to proclaim your power over sin and death, you burst out of the grave. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that your spirit today sustains us until you return. Amen. Let's eat the bread together. On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and taken, after the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. When we take the cup, we remember that Jesus gave himself fully. He didn't, he didn't have a, you know, he didn't bleed out a little bit. He didn't tithe his blood. As I've said before, he gave fully. Gave his life. And he reminds us, he, nobody took it from him. He wasn't coerced into death. He gave up his life freely. Let's pray, and then we're going to drink the cup together. Jesus, we cannot imagine what it must have been like for you to be praying in Gethsemane, knowing what was before you, trusting the Father and loving us so deeply that you would go to the cross to absorb bruises and whips, nails, spears, so that you, all so that you could be in relationship with us, that you would lead us to God the Father. And so we thank you for that sacrifice and we are reminded as we take this cup that although salvation, although this rest is free, it was not cheap. You paid for it with your very blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink together. And so God, as we leave this place today and as we respond in a song of celebration, being reminded that you are a God who thinks, who believes we ought to stamp in our lives uh, your love and your desire for us. We ought to stamp in our lives times of celebration. We do that today as we leave this place and we gather in different homes to eat, as we go for walks and taking in uh, nature. I pray today that you would recreate us. Recreate us through conversation, through food, through community, through experience. And may we be mindful that you are the unseen guest in every experience we take on today. Even as we sing now, I pray as we sing this song of celebrating our relationship with you, we would understand and celebrate the deeper rest that you offer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. 
If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.